On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day that they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell all the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, as always, it's a fearful and a wonderful thing to come into contact with your truth and your word. We ask this morning that you would give illumination and insight into the mystery of the person of Christ, and that we would understand all the more the wisdom with which you do all of your great works of redemption. Give us illumination, clear minds, and hearts ready to praise King Jesus that he may be exalted among all the nations. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, for our recap and introduction, recall we are uh, attempting at this point to explain the distinction between the biblical notions of the holy and common. And our ultimate goal is to learn how to and what it means for us to distinguish between those things as Christians and to prepare us for 1 Samuel chapter 6. In the first session, you recall, we looked at the holy kingdom of creation, And we emphasized its eschatological nature and its orientation. And we saw that God introduced, after the fall, a temporal, common kingdom. And then last time we walked through portions of Genesis 4 to 11, and we saw God's unfolding and development of that common sphere. We looked at the stories of Cain and the flood and even Babel. And we saw how marriage, labor... Procreation, city building, animal mastery, economics, music, arts, nations, languages, the civil magistrate, procreation, and more were all instituted by God as necessary elements of the age that believers and unbelievers mutually inhabit. The purpose of all that was to note how all of those institutions and features of the world are now in this age destined to pass away. And so our emphasis so far has been on studying the origins of the common kingdom that we are all citizens of right now. And we are going to be contrasting that kingdom with the eternal kingdom of the Messiah. But we ended last time by noting that there's this long stretch of redemptive history right, that inaugurates in Genesis 12 and stretches for the rest of the Old Testament period. And that we need to deal with that before we actually come to the kingdom of Christ. And that time period, of course, is the time of the nation of Israel. You may remember that I sort of at the end last time quoted uh, John MacArthur. I'll remind you of that quote. He said, if you get Israel right, you get eschatology right. If you do not get Israel right, you will never get eschatology right. And so every Christian theological system has to be able to explain the nation of Israel in some way. You've got to do something with it. And there are many ways that you can get it wrong. And there are consequences for getting it wrong. We'll talk about a couple of those at the end. Our goal today is to derive our understanding of the nation of Israel by building on some of these foundational principles that we've been looking at so far and seeing what Scripture has to say. What we want to do this morning is explore how the nation of Israel fits into this holy common paradigm that we've been going through. How it sheds light on the common realm we've discussed, uh, excuse me, well what we, yeah, I messed up there. We will see how... uh, the exploration of the nation of Israel helps us to understand more fully the common kingdom uh, as well as the kingdom of Christ. Now, as I like to do very often, I'm going to start by giving you the summary of the whole thing up front, and then we'll go through it. In the nation of Israel, God introduces into the midst of the common realm a different type of kingdom, one that is not part of the common sphere, but is instead a typological holy kingdom. In other words, we are saying, and we will say, that Israel is not a common kingdom, like we looked at last time. The kingdom of Israel is in many ways a recapitulation of the original holy kingdom of Adam, which was lost, 
And it is simultaneously a type or a picture of the coming eternal messianic kingdom, but not the true thing. Like the kingdom of Adam before it, Israel is a kingdom in which every aspect and institution that composes it is holy or set apart by God to partake of a glorious state of rest and communion with God, though only on the level of types and shadows. And as a non-common holy kingdom, Israel has a different eschatological purpose and it functions on a different principle than the common kingdom into which it is interjected. Now that the nation of Israel is a holy nation is clearly stated. We just read it in Exodus 19. God calls them that. But explaining what that means takes more work. It's not just a statement that Israel is holy, that Israel is to be a morally pure nation. There, that's involved. But instead, it has everything to do with being set apart for communion with God. And we're going to demonstrate and unpack that from the Scripture. And again, in doing so, we will better understand what Israel is and how it differs from common nations such as our own. So we'll establish and explain Israel's holiness under three headings. First, we'll look at Israel's origins. Second, we will look at Israel's eschatological covenant. And then thirdly, we will look at Israel's holy dominion. So let's begin with Israel's origins. Now the foundations of recognizing that Israel is in fact a holy kingdom and that it is distinct from the common nations around it is laid in the fact that Israel is a nation that is created and redeemed by God Himself. And the way that Israel is established is not the same as the way that other nations around them are established. So under this, main, or this first main point of Israel's origins, we're going to look at two sub-points. First, we're going to see Israel's redemptive origins. And then second, we will look at common nation origins. So then, Israel's redemptive origins. Where does the nation of Israel originate? Remember, it goes back to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2 in God's words to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. But God says that he will make this nation. And then as, as time goes on, we actually see God doing it. He actually begins to make this nation. But he doesn't do it through ordinary means. He works in special and often miraculous acts to bring this people into existence. It starts with, with the birth of Isaac. If a, if a nation is going to come from Abraham's loins, it's got to start with at least one child being born. And so that's where we come with Isaac. But of course you'll recall that Sarah and Abraham are too old, naturally speaking, to have children. And yet they conceive and Isaac is born. Right? God gives special, miraculous conception to bring forth the child, Isaac. And then as time goes on, Isaac bears Jacob. And Jacob has his 12 sons. And then those 12 sons begin to have their own children. And they find themselves going down to Egypt in the days of Joseph. But at this point, even though they're increasing and multiplying, they're still not technically a nation. All through this portion of, of the scriptures, they were referred to specifically as a people. As far as I read through, I could not find anywhere where they are called a nation up to this point while they're in the land of Egypt. Now, in order to make them into a nation, what does God do? He comes and he visits them in the land of Egypt and he works miraculous redemption through all manner of signs and wonders and mighty deeds. You think of the burning bush, right? The, the staff of Moses that's turned into a serpent. All the plagues and the parting of the sea and the presence of the divine glory. The angel of the Lord. Uh, his, God's appearance on Sinai. The giving of the law. All these mighty deeds and wonders are a part of what God is doing to found this nation. He does these things. And it is after He has redeemed them and He has organized them, and He has given them a law, and He has brought them into a land to dwell. At that point in the Pentateuch, they are then called a nation. God is the one, in other words, who forms them through special providences. And then the unique nature of Israel's origin is thrown into a more intensive backdrop when we compare how they were formed some of the nations around them. So we come to the second subpoint: common nation origins. We just recapped how Israel was founded. But of course the Bible mentions many other nations that exist at this time, especially the ones that are immediately surrounding the nation of Israel. And in a number of cases, the Bible even gives us sort of an origin story on how those nations came to be. Let's consider just a couple of them. How about Babel and Nineveh? Some well-known cities that, that even children, as they're reading the Bible, get acquainted with. Babel and Nineveh. How were those nations originated? 
Well, in Genesis chapter 10, as the people uh, are, are leaving the Tower of Babel and spreading abroad, we actually get a, a story about how those cities were founded. We read there that Cush fathered Nimrod. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Now notice, how were, how were those cities founded? According to the text, as mankind was spreading abroad on the earth, a man named Nimrod was born. And just according to the uh, faculties and abilities that he had, and presumably the lusts that were in him for power and dominion, he, like Cain, gained power for himself amongst men, and he built a city. But notice, there's nothing mentioned about extraordinary or miraculous wonders being performed by God to found these nations. These cities were founded like many others, men moving from one location to the next. They find a place that they like, they get together with some other men, and they start building. No miracles necessary. Or Moab and Ammon. You remember uh, the story of Lot and his incest with his daughters. And, and as those, each of those daughters bears a son, the two sons that are born to them, the text says, went on to become the father of those nations, Moab and Ammon, or the nation of Edom. In Genesis 36, uh, we read of how Esau left the land of uh, the house of his father, and he takes all of his stuff, and he goes and, and lives in a new land, and over the course of a few generations, he begins to found the nation of Edom, uh, just through natural procreation and the increase of his posterity. But in all of this, nothing miraculous is necessary. The, the ordinary operations of God's providence, you might say, are the cause of these nations being formed. So then, the groundwork for understanding Israel as a holy nation, different from the common nations, is seen quite easily in the way in which both of these nations are founded. Israel, an act of God's special redemptive providence, not merely God's hidden decree. Whereas with the other nations, again, we just have a statement, a human did this, and a human did this, and a human did this, and boom, a nation is founded. So that lays the foundations for us to see Israel as something different. They are a special creation of God's hand. Which brings us then to the second point, Israel's eschatological covenant. Now the fact that Israel is a holy nation and the explanation of what that means is seen simply by looking at the covenant that God makes with them. And in this sub-point, or this second main point, our basic assertion is this, that in the Mosaic covenant, God establishes the kingdom of Israel as an echo, on a typological level alone, of the original kingdom order and program that characterized the pre-fall holy nation of Adam. And it foreshadows at the same time the messianic kingdom. Now recall something. When what made Adam's kingdom holy was that, as we said, it was able to partake of glory and eternal rest with God. Now how was that eschatological state offered to Adam and his kingdom? Through a covenant. The promise of the covenant that God entered into with Adam, the covenant of works, is what established the kingdom's holy character. And then God comes with the nation of Israel, and He also makes a covenant with them. And when we look at the basic nature of that covenant, with its promises and the principle on which it operates, we can see a direct parallel to Adam's original holy kingdom and covenant. So in this section, we'll see how Israel's covenant establishes it as a holy kingdom. I have four subpoints here. We're going to look first at just the existence of Israel's covenant. Just to make sure that we've sort of established the fact that there is a covenant, even though most of us are familiar with that, let me just read you a couple of verses from Exodus 24, where God emphasizes the fact that He is making a covenant with this nation. In Exodus 24, in verses 7 to 8, we read this. Then He, this is Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So there's a covenant that God's making with Israel. And that covenant is referred to over and over again in the Old Testament. It's the Mosaic Covenant. Now let's look at the context of Israel's covenant. Now by looking at the context in which this covenant is made and comparing it to the context that the original covenant of works was made in, we can see that the Scripture is actually making intentional parallels between them. Look first at the Mosaic covenant context. 
what is the context in which God makes this covenant with Israel? What had God done prior to this? Well, God had, as it were, uh, if we read Exodus 3, descended from his holy mountain. He had conquered the waters, the Red Sea in this case. He had led a people through by bringing forth dry land, and he had taken this people into a holy land and placed them, uh, as it were, at the foot of his holy mountain. Now, the context of the original covenant of works with Adam. When we look back, what we see is that many of the actions that God takes in that basic framework of bringing forth and establishing the kingdom of Israel are intentionally cast as direct parallels to how God brought forth the original holy kingdom. Remember, in Genesis 1, what do we read? God descends in His Spirit. He parts the waters that cover the earth. He brings forth dry land. And then He brings forth mankind to dwell in His holy land of Eden, on His holy mountain. And the Song of Moses in Exodus 15 and the Psalms and the Prophets all look back right, upon Israel's redemption from Egypt and they use some of the exact same language and words to describe the redemption from Egypt that are found in Genesis 1 and 2 when God describes the original holy kingdom. I don't have time to go through and show you all those parallels. That would take about 10 minutes probably. But at the very least, the scripture is intentionally drawing parallels because it wants us to see a relationship between the establishment of the original Adamic kingdom and what God is creating in the nation of Israel. This is all part of that repetition of the overall biblical theme of God bringing forth a holy people to dwell in a holy land with Him, with His presence in their midst, where He will be their God and where they shall live and serve and worship Him, being sanctified unto His name. So that is the context of the Israelite covenant. It's made right after God sort of reenacts the process by where he created the first holy kingdom. Now let's look at the eschatological promise of this covenant that God makes. To see that the covenant that God makes with them establishes Israel as a holy nation, we just need to look at the promise that God makes within the covenant. And what is it that God promised the nation of Israel through their covenant? Well, there's one main promise of the covenant and a number of uh, smaller sub-promises, all of which are merely an outworking of this overarching promise that God makes. And the main point is this. In Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7, what does God say to them? I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. The promise of the covenant is that Israel gets God as their own. Now, there are many, like I said, sub-promises that all exist to facilitate the attainment of that primary promise that Israel will get God. Some of the sub-promises of this covenant include the following. God will put His Spirit or His presence in their midst. He will give them the land of Canaan to dwell in on the earth. He will give them descendants and offspring whose inheritance will be that land. They will enjoy successful labor in the land. The land will produce abundant provisions. They will have God's own protection from their enemies. And they will have Rest. Those are all things that God promises to Israel in this covenant. And the reason for all of those promises is to create a kingdom in which God lives in the midst of this people in a sanctified land where they may worship and enjoy Him continually in a state of rest. Now, does that ring any bells? The promise of this covenant in kingdom is meant to recreate a picture of the original promise held forth in the first covenant kingdom. It's a picture of what Adam could have had as a reward of his covenant. Perpetual communion with a holy God in the eternal heavenly land. Now we emphasize again, God is not through the nation of Israel recreating the full substance of the original kingdom. It's a picture, but it's not the true substance of the thing. Now how do we see that? Because what was promised to Adam? Actual heaven. The real thing. The real deal. He gets actual eternal life. Here the promise is Canaan. Canaan is just a picture of heaven, but it's not the real thing. And the Israelite offspring in this covenant, they picture the glorified kingdom inhabitants that, that would have dwelt in the original one. But we know that they're not the real inhabitants that of necessity get to inherit heaven because many of them perished and they went down to hell. The tabernacle in this kingdom pictures God's glorified presence with mankind. But if it was the real thing, not just a picture, but the real eternal presence of God, unveiled in all its glory, then mankind would have to be glorified to endure it. So it's all pictures. It's not the substance of the original kingdom, but it does point back to it. That's why we say Israel is a typological holy kingdom. 
They function as a holy kingdom, but not on eternal substance, merely on the level of types and shadows. So that's the promise of the covenant. It's promising that Israel will dwell in a state of rest with God, just as Adam was promised. So that's another way that we see that Israel is holy in nature. The promise given to them is that of rest with God. And of course, it should be obvious to all of us that this promise was given to no other nation. No other nation had the promise that their nation, as it existed as its own entity, would get to dwell with God where he would place his special presence in their midst. God did not promise the Edomites that he would come and give them the opportunity to have his uh, tabernacle or his temple built upon Mount Seir, the, the great mountain in the land of Edom. Israel alone has this promise of, of, of rest or communion with the Lord. So then, that is the promise of the covenant. It sets them apart as holy. They're set apart to dwell with God. Next, Israel's holiness is seen in examining the principle on which this covenant operates. Recall, again, that that Adam in his holy kingdom was governed by the principle that he would receive blessings for obedience and a curse in response to disobedience. And then remember, we made a big point of establishing that in the fall, that principle that mankind earns blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience is modified by the introduction of that common kingdom. And we said that the common kingdom is governed by the principle that we've uh, sort of articulated within Reformed theology of common grace, in which man experiences temporal blessings and cursings in this life in a way that is not of necessity tied to his law-keeping. Common kingdoms and all of the common realm are ruled by this principle. Nations rise and fall in ways that are often not tied directly to their obedience to God. And while they last, God often gives them temporal blessings in spite of rampant national wickedness. Our nation might be an example of that currently. Egypt received abundant blessings in spite of its idolatry for a time. The same is true of the Philistines, the Hittites, the Babylonians, and the Assyrians. The principle of common grace has characterized all of the nations in biblical history up to this point after the fall. But holy kingdoms, like Adam's, are ruled by blessings for obedience and a curse for disobedience. And what's interesting is that when we come to the nation of Israel, we find that that same original principle is now reintroduced. It's returned to govern this nation. Now to see that, consider, uh, let's turn... To Leviticus chapter 26. Parallel passage in Deuteronomy 28, but we'll look at Leviticus chapter 26. It really continues all the way through chapter 27. I'm just going to read some portions of it. Just listen to, to the way that this works. Notice what, that God is promising things, and notice sort of the condition upon which it is given. Start in verse 3. If you, Israel, walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, a.k.a. if you obey, then here's what you'll get. I will give you your rain in their seasons, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Now, did Edom get rain in spite of their disobedience? Yes, they did. But these people get rain as a contingency upon their obedience. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. There's that security. I will give peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword will not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And it keeps going on. What's he saying there? You obey, here's some blessings that you'll receive. Then contrast that, jump down to verse 14. But if you will not listen to me, and you will not do these commandments, if you disobey, here's what will happen. If you will spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you do not walk in all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, and with wasting disease, and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heartache. And you will sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you will be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. You see it? God tells them they'll receive promised blessings if they obey, but curses if they disobey. In other words, the principle that governed the original holy kingdom is back in this nation. 
Now, why is it reintroduced? Why must holy kingdoms be governed by the principle of blessings for obedience and not by common grace? Because in Scripture, heaven is something that must be earned or merited. And any time that you have a covenant or a kingdom where the attainment of heaven itself or something that typifies heaven, like Canaan, is at stake, then its blessing and security must be merited and maintained on the principle of obedience. Somebody has got to earn it. Somebody's got to. So God reintroduces the works principle, blessings for obedience, because he's holding forth to them something that typifies heaven, Canaan, and the land. So that's another way we see Israel as a holy kingdom. It operates on holy kingdom principles, blessings for obedience. Again, none of this is true of the common nations around them. They're not promised heaven or anything that's a type of heaven as a nation. So they are not holy nations, and therefore they are not subject to the attainment of blessings via a strict works principle. So that's the overarching point number two in seeing how Israel is a holy kingdom in the midst of the common nations. Now we come to overarching point number three, Israel's holy dominion. The third way in which Israel's status as a non-common holy kingdom is established is by looking at their, what we might call, uh, mandate, typological mandate of dominion. Now to set the context of this, recall that in, again, the original kingdom order, God gave Adam the dominion mandate. We've talked about that as a refresher. That meant that Adam would build the kingdom city of God. And this involved creating and developing culture and human society and civilization, all of which would be sanctified to God. That's where those things like the institution of marriage and procreation and rulership, architecture, music, on and on, would all combine to form the essence of this kingdom that would dwell with God forever. And we said previously that many of those same features of the pre-fall world are transferred into the common kingdom, but of course they lose their eschatological purpose. They now serve the purpose of building the common realm to, to keep mankind going, as it were, the, the stage of redemptive history. But they will not last into eternity. Their holy character is gone. But what we find when we come to the nation of Israel is that God, as it were, reinstitutes a dominion mandate or a type of dominion mandate for Israel to conquer and cultivate and subdue the land of Canaan and to build within that land a culture and a civilization that would reflect the eternal heavenly kingdom. Now, in this section, I want, I, what I want to do is I want to go through, and I, uh, I'm just going to pick a few of those uh, institutions, so to speak, and, and I just want us to observe how, how they're reintroduced into the Israelite kingdom and how they regain sort of that holy function, and we'll explain what that means when they come into the nation of Israel. Remember, again, what made these things holy originally was that they were all oriented toward the production and the attainment of glorified life. So we're just going to go through three. Let's start first with marriage, family, and procreation. You'll recall that what originally made this institution holy in Adam's kingdom was that marriage, family, and procreation was the means whereby the citizens of the eternal kingdom were created. It was the mechanism of producing the subjects of the kingdom that would dwell with God in glory. How was someone brought into the Adamic kingdom? Theoretically, if they continue, by reproduction. They're born into it. And by virtue of being born into that kingdom, they are to be made inheritors of heaven, which is the promise of that kingdom. That's why we said before, when, when children were to come forth originally before the fall, they would have uh, glory, as it were, stamped on their forehead. This one is designated to God for glory. It was their inheritance if they succeeded. And marriage and family and procreation, again, reappears in the common realm. But it's, it's not the means whereby citizens of glory are created anymore. It's simply a, for the propagation and survival of the human race in this age. But it has lost that eschatological Function. They're not automatically born, our children, with uh, uh, eternal heaven as their natural birthright and inheritance. But then we come to the nation of Israel. And marriage and family once again take on a holy character, even if it's only on the level of types and shadows. And here's what I mean. That in Israel, marriage and procreation do not just produce any old human beings. They do produce human beings. But they're not just any old human beings. In Israelite reproduction, citizens of the kingdom of God are produced by virtue of procreation. Of, again, of this typological kingdom. 
They come out consecrated to communion with God. Right? That was their purpose. That's why they received the mark of circumcision. It was a mark that said, this one belongs to God. This one is holy to the Lord. And it was said that the Israelites and their offspring in Deuteronomy 28... It was said of them that the nations would see that they are called by the name of Yahweh their God. God's name was on them simply by virtue of being born into this kingdom. The stamp of God was placed on them, again, symbolized by circumcision. Now, remember, Canaan is a type of heaven. And the Old Testament speaks over and over about how one of the blessings of the covenant is that the offspring, the seed of Israel will inherit or possess the land. Land typifies heaven. Think of Psalm 25. Speaking of the, the righteous man in Israel, his soul shall dwell in prosperity, his offspring shall inherit the land. Procreation produces in Israel holy land inheritors, which is another way of saying it produces God inheritors. And so from the, uh, from the point of the holy land, again, it's where God has chosen to make his presence dwell. So Israelite procreation is holy, and it echoes the holy function that procreation originally served. Again, only on, a, on the level of types. It's not the real substance. The inheritors of this kingdom get Canaan. They don't get actual heaven. They get an accommodated form of God's presence, not the full unveiled glory. Now to further establish that procreation has sort of regained its holy character in the kingdom of Israel, just consider how procreation in Israel as we move through the scriptures, functions as a, a type uh, of the eternal holy kingdom of the Messiah. When Christ comes to inaugurate that eternal kingdom, he tells us that his kingdom will also be populated by a citizenry. And how are the citizens of Christ's kingdom produced? What is it that makes someone born, as it were, into the kingdom of God? It is regeneration. Regeneration makes someone a member of the kingdom of heaven. And it stamps wholly to the Lord onto their conscience. And it constitutes them as someone whose inheritance is eternal life in the heavenly land. Now, what language does the New Testament use to describe regeneration? The new birth. Procreation. Again, you recall the famous story. In speaking to the Jewish man Nicodemus, Jesus takes the institution that produced citizens of the kingdom of Israel and says that was meant to be a picture of how citizens of my kingdom will be born. Spiritual birth, spiritual regeneration is the means by which the heavenly kingdom citizens are produced. And it is the fulfillment of Israelite procreation. So Jesus' own appeal to that institution in Israel as a type of how citizens would be born in his kingdom shows that in Israel, procreation had taken on a holy function. Again, just contrast this with, with some other nation. Edomite procreation did not paint this picture, not in its fullness. It's not just procreation by mankind in general that is a picture of the new birth. Maybe there's a connection there, but it's, it's got to be much more. Because the new birth is a, not just a birth into life, but it is a birth into something, into an inheritance. Unlike Edomite births, Israelite births were a birth into an inheritance in the kingdom of God, where God would dwell in their midst. No other nation and their children received that inheritance just by virtue of being born. Right? So birth that has inheritance as its necessary uh, concomitant is therefore uh, the, the connection to the antitype in the new covenant. So then, that's procreation. It seemed to be holy again in Israel. Now let's look at work, labor, and vocation. Those functions, those institutions, as it were, once again take on a holy function in Israel distinct from the work and labor of the common kingdom. Again, we go back. In the original kingdom, work and labor were the means whereby the kingdom would be produced. The kingdom that God would glorify was to be constructed. It was building something eternal that would partake of a state of rest. In the common kingdom, as we said, work no longer has that eschatological framework. Man is building the common kingdom, which will pass away. That's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. In Israel, however, after God brings them into the land, the labor and the work that they do is always bound up in cultivating the land and building the kingdom of Israel within it. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 28 as it describes Israelite work as they obey God. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity 
in the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your livestock, and the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give you rain in, uh, in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands, labor. You see, work is always in Israel connected to the land. It's, it's connected to building the land, to developing the kingdom of Israel. They were building and developing the holy land in which God would dwell. So it's once again, it's an echo of the first man who was called to build the kingdom of God by working and keeping the land. Right? That gets repeated with Israelite work. Labor, therefore, is again holy in this sense. It builds the place where God's name will dwell. Now consider how this is a type of the eternal holy kingdom. The true Israel, Christ comes, and we are told that the means, uh, by the means of in, the institution of labor, Christ will build his kingdom. He says to the Jews in John 5, My father is working until now, and I am working. Christ, in other words, says, I've come to work. I've come to labor. And what is the purpose of his work? To build the eternal kingdom. And isn't it interesting that the results of Christ's kingdom-building work in the New Testament are described as the production of spiritual fruit. Now, where have we heard the language of fruit before? In Israel's context. In Israel's labor, the, the, the result of their labor, as it were, was said to yield fruit. The fruit of the land, the fruit of heaven is the fruit of the heavenly land, so to speak, that they were producing. And uh, in other words, the New Testament is telling us that the work that Christ does through His Spirit in sanctifying believers and producing an eternal fruit in them, that labor is the fulfillment. It is the antitype of Israelite work and labor in the land. It yielded physical fruit. Christ's work yields spiritual fruit. The New Testament sees labor in the kingdom of Israel as a holy institution that produces the substance of the kingdom of God, just as Adam was called to do. But again, it's always in distinction, always in distinction from the work of the common kingdom, which rather than being characterized by the building of something eternal, is characterized by Solomon in this way. What has a man from all his toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work, his labor, is as vexation. Even in the night, his heart doesn't rest. You see? See the difference? The work that Israel does is building towards something. The work that Christ does is building toward an eternal inhabitant. But when you come into the common realm, as Solomon looks out to it, he says, I see man out there in the common realm working, and there's no end goal in sight. It's all vexation. It's all vanity. There's a difference between them. So then, we've looked at marriage and procreation. They regain a holy function. Work and labor, they also regain a holy function in Israel. And we'll just take one more. How about uh, artistic abilities and culture building? Recall again, in the original Holy Kingdom, man would use the gifts and abilities that God had given him in the area of artistry, and he would construct the heavenly kingdom with it in song, in architecture, in sculpture, in writing, all of those things, and many more, in music. In the common kingdom, those sort of natural abilities remain within mankind as God sort of gives them out by nature, but they're only used to construct a common world and are not spirit-wrought gifts that are designed and crafted to produce holy culture. We saw that in Cain City. They go out and what do they start doing? They start making music and, and artistry and all these things. But they're not building something eternal. And yet when we come to the nation of Israel, it's very interesting when you read and you pay attention, sort of the, these abilities of arts and culture building once again be take, begin to take on a, a holy function. Let me give you two examples. First, God commands Israel back in Exodus that they are to construct a tabernacle, a house for his name, the very place where he will dwell. Now, if there was nothing holy about this nation in the sense that we've defined it, what could the Israelites have done? They get the command, go build the tabernacle. What do they do? They say, okay, go out and find for us the guy who's most naturally gifted at this whole artistic thing. Uh, you know, maybe we'll put a competition. Somebody tries to build a model of it. Whoever comes up with the best one, that's the one that we'll choose to build the real one. But they're all, they could have just based it on people's, quote-unquote, natural abilities. But that's not what we see. In Exodus 31, it is God who sends His Spirit to dwell upon two men and gives them supernatural ability and mastery of artistic endeavors for the purpose of building His house. Let me read to you from Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Ur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, 
to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and the cutting of stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to him ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat and all of the furnishings of the tent, etc. You see it? In this kingdom, craftsmanship, artistry, that institution of creation is, is, is something that is granted by the Spirit of God for the purpose of building the house of God. They're not common functions because in this case, God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of glory, is producing those abilities within these kingdom citizens for a purpose. When Egypt built the pyramids, when Babylon built its palaces, when Rome built its aqueducts, we can look at those things and go, wow, that is an amazing natural ability to build some stuff that, that even to this day kind of vexes us. Like, how did they do it? But even in the sort of the pinnacles of mankind's common artistic endeavors, the Spirit of God was not the thing producing sanctified abilities within those men and women to build the spiritual kingdom of God. They were using their common abilities that they had received in birth apart from the Holy Spirit's work in them. And they were simply making perishable things. That's why they're all decaying to this day. But on the other hand, Israel's artistic and musical abilities weren't about making entertainment and architecture for carnal men. They were about producing the very substance of the typological kingdom of God. And again, just quickly, you see it, you see it in the days of David, right? When, he, when he's about to organize the singers and the musicians for the building of the temple. We're, we're told that the Spirit uh, pours out on some of those people and they begin to, to utter inspired speech, inspired song, and they begin to write many of the, the psalms that we still read to this day. The Spirit produces these things within those people. He's reorienting those abilities that were there in the Adamic kingdom once again for a holy purpose to construct the kingdom of the living God. Now another one, which we're not going to go through, would be monarchy. Uh, the role of kingship, the institution of kingship or government within the nation of Israel does once again take on a, a holy function, but that is such a wide open can of worms that uh, I've decided it's best that we save that for 1 Samuel 8 when Israel demands a, a king. We'll dive into that a little bit more. So then, what have we seen thus far? That's the three main points. The Bible portrays the nation of Israel as a holy kingdom inserted by God into the midst of the common realm. And it is distinct from those nations that belong to that order. Its purpose is to echo the Adamic kingdom and to foreshadow the holy messianic kingdom. And this is seen again in their being founded as a kingdom order of God's own possession. God's the one who created them. Uh, he makes a covenant with them wherein he promises that they will be uh, able to dwell with him in a state of rest. And he reinstitutes that principle, blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. And then finally, he takes all of those original institutions that were in the first creation and he brings them back into Israel and, and reorients their holy nature. So, we come to the application. The so what? Why does any of that matter? Well, recognizing this about Israel, what they are as a holy nation, helps us to do a number of things. First, it helps us to avoid a lot of theological error. Let me give you two types. First, errors of typology. When we understand that Israel was sort of a type of the eternal kingdom, and it was also designed to bring the Messiah historically, physically into the world, we will then be in a position to properly, in our theology, transition from types to their fulfillment or to their antitype. You know, just as, just as the idea of sacrifice as a concept, it's not abolished with the coming of Christ, but rather the typological animal sacrifices give way to the fulfillment of the true thing. Sacrifice is still a concept. It doesn't go away. But the type transitions to the anti-type. So in the same way, the concept of the kingdom of God as a whole and the people of God, the concept of a kingdom is not abolished. But the, the typological kingdom of Israel gives way, as it were, to the fulfillment of that, which is the kingdom bride of Christ. Now, we are often charged with believing in replacement theology. The charge there being you believe that 
God was once upon a time working with the, the nation of Israel, and they were his people. And then something happened, and he decided to change his mind, and now he wants to create this whole new people, sort of independent of what he was doing there. He sort of made this, this artificial switch or transition, and now he's uh, abandoned that plan A and gone with plan B, as it were. That's what we're charged with, replacement theology. And they say that's so awful. How could you say that the church replaces Israel when God made all those promises to them? Now, I respond to that with this. Do you believe, to the person who would make that charge, that you are saved by the blood of bulls and goats? To which they would presumably, hopefully, if they're orthodox, respond, no, no, no. Hebrews tells me that I can't be saved by the blood of bulls and goats. There is a true sacrifice that saves. It is Jesus. To which you could respond and say, okay, so you believe in replacement theology too. You believe that Jesus' sacrifice replaces the animal sacrifices. To which they would say, no, 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 that's that's not what we're saying. Those sacrifices pointed to Jesus, right? He's the fulfillment of them. Exactly. That's exactly right. You do believe, everyone must believe in this type, anti-type thing, and that when a type is fulfilled, that's not the same thing as it being replaced. The issue is fulfillment. Everyone sees this type, anti-type relationship, or they ought to. But people want to debate on which things within the nation of Israel are fulfilled and which things you know, might continue. And, but if you start there, if you start with the question of well, what things should be fulfilled and which are not, then you're going to wind up in these endless debates going around and around in circles, and you're never going to get anywhere. We have to go back and we have to start at the beginning, and we have to recognize that the entire kingdom of Israel, in its essence, is a typological holy kingdom. And once we see that, then we're prepared to recognize that the entire kingdom order of Israel, when the Messiah comes, gives way to its antitype, its fulfillment in the kingdom that Christ inaugurates. And that will keep us from, from constantly looking out for some future existence, such as the nation of Israel coming back into the land and rebuilding the temple and sacrifice and all those things. It will keep us from looking to this future existence of something that in biblical theology has been fulfilled. It has served its purpose. And again, this, this spares us from being hopelessly confused about uh, the position of the believing church as the people of God. But also thinking that Israel is going to have this, this future place. And, and if, if that's your theology, then what you get is when you get to the end of time and you have Israel as the people of God coexisting with the church as the people of God, you've got this strange mixture of type and anti-type both existing at the future. And you've destroyed the entire biblical paradigm. And, and it makes a mess out of it. It's very simple. Israel is the type, the church of glory, the antitype. Now, that's the first error, errors on typology. The second error that this understanding of Israel can help us to avoid are errors on holiness. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago at lunch this. It's very common that you'll see uh, either on the Internet or, or maybe on bumper stickers. I, I can think of... Uh, there's a contractor, maybe I don't want to say his name in public, but I guess I will. I think it's David L. Looper. He drive, he's got cars that drive around all the time. And especially when I used to work at, at Southlake, I would always, we would always at 6.30 in the morning somehow wind up in downtown Taylorsville right behind each other. It was like without fail. And he had this bumper sticker on the back of his truck, and it said 2 Chronicles 7.14. Let me read you that text. The text says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, people put that all over the Internet and all over bumper stickers, and they're, they're constantly quoting the verse. But what is it that they want to say through that? They're trying to take that statement that God makes, and they're trying to apply it to what? Their own country, usually America. And so the idea is this. If America will humble themselves and pray and repent and obey God more, then God will heal this land, uh, will enjoy temporal prosperity, God will fix our economy. You know, the applications are potentially endless. But that's the idea. Now, most of us, when we see verses applied, that were originally about Israel applied to America, we, we kind of know there's something a little off about that. And, and we might even go far enough to say, well, America's not Israel. Okay. But if someone who are quoting that were then ask you, okay, so why, why? can't that verse be applied to America? Why could it be applied to Israel and not America? It's not enough to simply say, because we're not Israel. Yeah, but, w- but what is the actual reason that us not being Israel makes that unapplicable? What would you say? Well, this is where the distinction between a holy nation and a common nation is so helpful. The reason why God could say to Israel, if you, fill in the blank, repent, obey, all of those things, then you as a nation will be blessed in your temporal affairs, was because they were a holy kingdom governed on 
the principle of blessings for obedience. That was the mark of the holy kingdom. That was part of the terms of their covenant. But what people do is they grab that principle in the verse, obey and receive temporal blessings. They rip it out. They transfer it to the nation that they live in. But what's the problem? They don't realize that they have just taken something written for a holy nation, and now they've tried to bring it over into the common sphere context and apply it there. They're crossing categories. And the reason that won't work is because common nations are, again, ruled by the principle of common grace, where blessings and cursings are experienced according to God's providence, and sometimes, but not necessarily, in relation to obedience. So it is not necessarily the case that if America will repent, and again, what percentage would, ha- would it have to be for that to even qualify? Nobody can ever define that, but, but even if we want to go with it. If America, however you want to define that, will repent and walk in relative national faithfulness to God, that God will be obligated to pour out economic prosperity and cultural flourishing and all the blessings that men covet. It's not the case that if America repents, even nationally, that that will happen. Even if God did pour out a spirit of revival on our nation, and there's everything right about praying for that, and many people turned and repented and began to live in godliness, there's nothing that prevents God, even under those circumstances, from allowing disaster to still strike this nation. Anything from Chinese hackers taking down the infrastructure of the country and sending us back into the dark ages, to Iran dropping a nuclear bomb on a nation filled with Christians, or from severe famine and drought that kill millions. None of those things would of necessity be prevented by having a lot of Christians living in this country. It would be a wonderful thing to have many Christians in our land. But no no matter how many Christians there are in this nation, it cannot change what the nation is in its essence. It is a common kingdom. It is not a holy nation. It is not governed by the principles that Israel was governed by. Now, I remember when I first, uh, first encountered this idea. It was in fifth grade. Katrina had just struck in New Orleans. I was in a Christian school. And my fifth grade teacher, I remember her saying something along the lines of, you know, uh, I was listening to... I don't remember the person's name, but looking back, it was probably one of those charismatic preacher people that were on the radio. And she said, uh, the reason that Katrina and all of that disaster had fallen upon New Orleans is because it was an especially wicked city. You know, you would go down there in Mardi Gras and people just naked all over the place. All the sin that takes place in New Orleans. And she said, God brought the hurricane there because of their disobedience. Now, I didn't, that kind of always felt weird to me, but I didn't know it at the time. But what was she, what was she saying there? She was taking the principles of a holy kingdom, that that disaster is always a response to particular identifiable sins, and applying it to a national disaster or a a natural disaster that had struck them. Uh, This happened again last year during the the coronavirus pandemic. I remember my cousin uh, posted something where he, he, in the midst of the pandemic, he quotes Psalm 91 where it says, you know, the plague shall not come near to your tent. And he says, Christians need to, to, to claim this promise, and America needs to claim this promise for ourselves, that if we'll repent and obey, God will keep the, the coronavirus, as it were, uh, out of this land. But you see what they're doing over and over again. They're taking the, the idea of a holy kingdom and applying it to a common nation. If we obey, we'll be safe. We'll get blessings. And that's why the question that is endlessly asked and debated in schools and churches about is this a Christian nation is the wrong question. The question that should be asked is this, is America a holy nation or a common nation. All the questions about how many founding fathers were Christians and whether they were actually deists and how faithful they were to God in their founding of the nation, all of it totally irrelevant to the question of what is America as a nation. And I don't care if every person who wrote the Constitution was a 1689 Reformed Baptist. That does not give them the power to establish a holy nation that will obligate God to govern it by the principle that if the nation obeys, he must of necessity pour out X number of blessings. God will govern our nation and all of the nations of the earth in this age by the principle of common grace. Only God can establish a holy nation. So then, let's look secondly at how this will help us in uh, making right and proper distinctions as we think about handling and applying the Word of God. Now, I know I beat this drum before, but when you wrestle with and think through a lot of these categories as you study God's Word, and as God's Word continues to be opened up to you, it will enrich the beauty of the Word of God, and Christ will be more and more seen all throughout it. And if you read Israel, and you have this in your mind as you're going through the Old Testament, Israel is a holy typological kingdom. 
then not only is it going to help you to make distinctions and sharpen your understanding of the common realm, but it's also going to help you in your understanding of the fulfillment of the kingdom that Christ builds. And it'll open up a wide range of applications that you can draw from your reading and your study. Now, I just want to walk through, and this will be the final thing, I want to walk through one example of how this can be done. And I'll use this example in order to bring some direct application to us in the congregation. Recall, we went through and we saw how various aspects of the national life of Israel took on a holy function, right? And yes, that helped us to distinguish them from common nations. But it will also help us to understand how those things that were applicable in the nation of Israel find their fulfillment in the kingdom that we are citizens of, the kingdom of heaven. So just take one that we mentioned. The endowment by the Spirit of God on men and women of the society of Israel with gifts that help them to form and fashion the substance of the kingdom with its culture. Remember, we, we talked about Aholiab and Bezalel and the gifts of artistry and craftsmanship. Now, if that institution in Israel is meant to be a, a type to paint a picture, then as we're reading through and we encounter narratives like that, we'll understand what they meant in their original context. We'll do the exegetical work. But then we'll be able to ask ourselves, okay, what relevance has this to us today who are members of Christ's kingdom? And the fulfillment of that idea of those particular uh, artistic abilities being endowed by the Spirit of God for the purpose of producing the kingdom finds its fulfillment in the risen Lord pouring out His Spirit upon members of His church for the purpose of constructing the body. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the entire body, the entire structure is built up into a house for the Spirit of God to dwell in. So when we read some of those texts in the Old Testament, it ought to cause us to think about our spiritual gifts, because our gift is given for the purpose of constructing the very dwelling place of God, the house of the living God. And therefore, our gifts are a very serious matter. A holy gift has been given to us. And it's a gift that unlike the various natural talents that men have, where they go out and, and they maintain the social order by putting them into practice, these gifts given to us by the Spirit of God come with divine power and ability to construct the place that the Spirit of God Himself lives. The Holy of Holies finds its true fulfillment in the church of the living God, which is built by the Spirit of Christ. Now, if that's the case, if we've been giving something with that level of eternal significance, then it ought to impact the way that we steward our gifts in our daily lives, and especially in our interactions with our brothers and sisters. And my great fear is that still, even in the midst of a congregation like this, that though many of us have been born of the Spirit of God and received a gift from the ascended Christ, there are some of us who have a record of stewardship of said gift, that amounts to little more than a person who's been given a, a gift, they receive a gift, that they don't really care about that much to begin with. And so they may smile and they say thank you when they receive it from their family member or whoever, but then uh, the gift ends up going and being stuck in the back shed somewhere and it's never really touched or used again, except when your eye occasionally sees it as you go in to get something else. It's put away. And let's be honest, for most of us, when someone is stewarding their gifts in that manner, we can tell it. We can see when people are clearly making an active practice of putting their gifts into use for the service of the body. Even those behind-the-scenes gifts, you usually still know that they're being put into practice. You know. You can see the evidence of it. And we have uh, other people that we think of, on the other hand, though, and we say, I'm not even sure what their gift is. I've never really seen them putting anything into practice before. So they don't view the divine gift. If that's you, if you're not putting your gifts into practice, then it, I don't care what you say. You do not view it properly as a divine gift that comes to you with the full weight of the divine imperative to build, 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 put it into use, put it into practice. Now, can you imagine, and this is where seeing the function of Israel's national life as holy helps us to make these connections to ourselves. But just imagine uh, Bezalel and Aholiab receiving the endowment of the gift of the Spirit of God in Exodus chapter 31, and then receiving the verbal charge, go, build the tabernacle, build the tent, use the gifts that you've been given to construct and make a place for God to dwell, and then responding, you know, I think I'm going to walk back to my tent. I'm going to think about this one for a couple of years. I'm not really sure what my gift is exactly, so I'm going to kind of play around with it and toss the idea around in my head over and over again, and maybe in a few years, 
I'll have a better idea of what it is, and then maybe I'll start God working on your house. What would have been the outcome in Israel if they had taken the endowment of the Spirit of God and gone and spent many years putting it to waste? If those men had sat around in that manner, instead of building the tabernacle, what would have come in Israel? Ruin, right? Because if there's no tabernacle, then there's nothing to lead them, as it were, into the land of Canaan. And so the whole kingdom enterprise is destroyed because they don't put their gifts into practice. So they didn't do that. They didn't sit around. They got up and they started building. They received the gift and they used it. Now, many of you men, you have natural talents that you employ in your workplace, right? There's a reason why you do what you do. You're good at something. You go to work day in and day out, and you put your common natural gifts to work like all the other men of the common realm, and you help to build and preserve the common kingdom, and that's fine. That's good. You should be doing that, but the point is that you get up every day, and you actually go do it, right? You get up, and you go use your natural talents in your job. But then somehow, for some of us, we come to the gates of the eternal kingdom, which will not pass away. We've been given a spiritual gift by the risen Christ. Can you imagine a greater honor than to receive a gift by the risen Christ? But we've received that gift to build something eternal and everlasting, a spiritual house which will not pass away. But then when you come here, it's almost as if you were to go to work and grab a chair and sit in the corner for eight hours and then clock out and go home. You're not engaging. You're not putting it into practice. Same with you ladies. You're, many of you are very skilled in the home and with all the tasks related to that sphere. And you have natural abilities in that area. And some of you are very, very good at certain aspects of, of being a wife and a homemaker. And others of you are even better at other aspects of it. But you've got these natural talents and gifts that you have. And yet you come into the, the kingdom house of God. And uh, to make the parallel back to your home life, it's as if you were to sleep in bed till 11 each day while the kids run wild and then get up and start watching Netflix, maybe feed them a few snacks to keep them occupied while you indulge in laziness. I hope that idea repulses you. But that's the parallel in the common sphere, so to speak, to what people who do not put their gifts into practice in Christ's kingdom are doing when they come here. We ought not to come to the household of God and stare around and wait on everyone else to work and engage in the building up of the church. We've all got to do the work. And beloved, I understand that not every one of us is going to be fully cognizant of their gift and fully skilled in its use on day one of conversion. But to the best of my knowledge, for those who I am pretty convinced are truly born again of the Spirit of God in here, I, I couldn't think of anybody who I could say, I think they're within their first year of conversion. I think most of us have at least been converted for a little while. We may not be aged saints, but we've been at this for, for a while now. And so for us to come in and to refuse to engage and to refuse to put our gifts into practice or to say, I don't know what it is and I'm kind of just going to sit and ride until somehow it's, the knowledge of it is zapped into my mind. Rather than pursuing a knowledge and an understanding of it, that you might put it into practice is nothing but spiritual laziness. There are some of you here where, honestly, I don't know what your spiritual gift is. Now, it is entirely possible that for in some cases the fault is totally my own. I have not put enough effort into discerning what it is, but you really are putting it into practice, and it's totally the fault of my perception. Maybe that's the case. But I, I feel pretty confident in saying that there's a reason that for some of you, not just me, but really most of your brothers and sisters around you cannot tell if they were put, they had sort of a gun put in their head and said, what is this person's spiritual gift? They would probably die because they're not going to be able to come up with a correct answer because you've given them nothing to see, nothing to observe. And if we don't get that corrected, then five years from now, we're going to be miles as a congregation behind where we could be if everybody is not stepping up to the plate and doing the work of discerning your spiritual gift. If you don't know what it is, go find it, search it out, and then put it into practice. If you're afraid of failure, if you're afraid, well, I think I might know what it is, but I don't want to sort of fall on my face by by awkwardly trying to put it into practice and, and having everybody make fun of me or something. If you're afraid of failure... Take heart, because Christ has promised to use those means to build up His church. You have the promise from the risen Christ. It's not up to your ability to put it into practice. Christ will give you the grace as long as you are diligent in pursuing Him in these matters. Right? Those building the tabernacle and the temple in Solomon's day were gifted by the Spirit and all craftsmanship, and they did not hesitate when they received the command to go and build 
to start engaging in the work. There was no long delay. They just jumped in and they did it. And God gave the increase. And we see if we truly believe that Israel is a holy nation that paints a picture of the kingdom that we've been made citizens of, then it's so freeing to know that we don't have to wait around until we get to the New Testament to realize that the instructions for us are kind of already there. We can use that nation and all of those portions of the Old Testament to teach us how to distinguish the holy from the common, yes, but also about how we as inheritors of the eternal kingdom are to function in the household of God, what our duties are within the holy kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says that the Old Testament was written down as an example for us, for our instruction. Every bit of it is useful for us. So that's just one way that you can just go back through the Old Testament. You can make use of this idea of Israel as a holy nation. And then you can discern, how does this apply to me? I could have picked 17 different ways to do that and make an application out of it. But use this when you go through. Discern these things in Israel, make the appropriate connections, and then apply the Word of God to your life and go forth. And so now as we turn to prayer, let's pray that God would teach us to be people that by the illumination of His Holy Spirit will make use of all of His Word to see not only the beauties of who He is, but to rightly understand how He would have us to live as citizens of two different kingdoms. So it was pointed out that holy kingdoms are established on a, a, a particular principle. The works principle. Because holy kingdoms find their terminus in glory, in a heavenly glory. And heaven is something that must be earned. We're creatures, we're not God. It must be earned. Adam had the opportunity and he failed. Canaan, the typological heaven, had to be earned and they failed. Israel failed and here we come as the local church, that, that anti-typical holy kingdom. And we have set before us glory and a heavenly reality. And we are reminded weekly, it must be earned. The works principle stands and we come to the Lord's table every week to be reminded the works principle has been met. The work is completed. Christ has accomplished the work. He did it. And then He says, and I'll give you the blessings. He took the cup of God's wrath. He says, here, you take the cup of blessing. I'll take the penalty. You take the reward. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a reminder of that. And so... As the elements are distributed, let us give our attention specifically to Christ crucified in, in that moment, those hours enduring the cross and then obeying even to the point of yielding up His Spirit in death so that the blessings of an accomplished work would be given to us.